Oh, hello. Happy Saturday. Wait. Sunday. No. I was trying to say happy Thursday Thursday because we release on Thursday. (laughs) And then I said Saturday, but today is Sunday. So that doesn't even make any sense. None of it makes sense. We just need to not say the day, maybe. Maybe, yeah. That's true. We're always in a world. Well, the one who doesn't know the day, my name is Savannah. And I'm Alicia. And this is Burden of Proof. Are you ready? I'm so excited. I love this case. This is a crazy case. It's a good one, but I think it really fits for our podcast. I'm super excited. Yeah, it covers all of the things. All of the things. All of the things. All right. So, going back to the ancient time, <laughs> my time of the 1990s. We make the we make the going back in time joke every episode, so I know. It's, Sorry, folks. It's okay. I do it way more. <laughs> Not that you haven't all read the the title of the episode, <laughs> but this is the Jenny Jones murder, not the murder of, of Jenny, Jenny Jones. Jones. <laughs> I should say the Jenny Jones show murder. It's very controversial, to put it mildly. Okay. So anyone around in the 1990s undoubtedly remembers how tawdry daytime talk shows became throughout the decade. So... You being a 2000s baby, have you seen footage besides this case? Because I know you know about this case. Yes. How much of these types of talk shows have you seen? I mean, not a ton. What I would watch on TV when I was sick, like, you know, you know, you stay home, you watch The Price is Right, you watch talk shows, but not a whole lot. Okay. Well, it was a never-ending contest for ratings. And just when it seemed there was nothing off limits, producers would find a way to shock audiences yet again. This was often done by surprising guests with not always good news, which came to be known as ambush television. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to recap my answer. Okay. Because those of you who are also Gen Z who watch Cody Co, he does videos on YouTube where he rates and like reviews old shows like this with yes. the ambush. So I've seen some, but only watching Cody like, watch it. <laughs> right. Still, you get the you get the idea yes, of it, exactly. of how crazy it really could yes, get. Exactly. Um. Yeah, it was not. It was not classy television for no, sure. It was crazy. Yeah. So, in 1995. The Jenny Jones Show would test the limits of this ambush-style formatting by filming an episode where guests reveal their same-sex crushes. Ooh. Which, and today, I I feel the need to say this because even having been there, I was in high school at this time, okay, in 1995. I was like a sophomore in high school. Okay. And even I forgot just how dramatically different that was at that time in yeah, history exactly. compared to today because you hear that today and you're like okay what's the big deal like yeah no big deal but it was a big deal back then it's it was crazy still- how fast things have changed yeah in the last 20 years mm-hmm. 20 to 25 years yeah it has changed dramatically because yeah Honestly, most of the people that I went to high school with, that the vast majority of them that were gay or bisexual or anything, did not come out until well after high school. Yeah. 
I only, I mean, I had a few friends that were kind of out or like everybody kind of knew. We just didn't talk about it all the time. But most of them did not come out till well after high school, probably after college even. Yeah. So it was a different era. Absolutely. All right. Now, before we get into the details of what happened on the show and the aftermath, let's talk about those involved. Okay. So first up is Scott Bernard Amador, the youngest of four children. He was 32 at the time of filming. He's a boss name. Dope name. (laughs) His brother Frank has stated that Scott revealed he was gay while serving in the army, which was very... Yeah, that's... A big deal back then. I feel like even today, it can be a really big deal. Yes. Yes. But this was in the time of the whole... Don't say gay. Don't say gay kind of mentality in the... Yeah. But his brother Frank says it was not a big deal in their family. That's why he was comfortable coming out. Mm -hmm. Because not even their father, who they thought might have a problem with it, really had... Nobody had a problem with it in his family. So Scott was very comfortable living as an openly gay man. So Frank also claimed that Scott had always wanted to be on TV. We all know a person like that. Yeah. And a longtime fan of the Jenny Jones show, Scott signed up to do the show when he saw a prompt that they were looking for guests who wanted to reveal a same-sex crush. So at the end of every Jenny Jones show, just before the final credits or whatever, they'd always put up a little prompt. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you or someone you know looking for blah, 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 blah? And then they give the 800 number, you call, and then producers call you back and determine, are you a good person for the slot? So with his friend Donna Riley accompanying him, he signed up for the show thinking it might be an easier way to let their friend, Jonathan Schmitz, know how he really felt about him. How and what? Okay. On what planet? Is that easier? Yeah. I, <laughs> my sentiments exactly. I, but that's, there's nothing else I, that needs to be said. Yeah. That's just. So, okay. So the connection between the three of them goes something like this. Scott and Donna met at the apartment complex that she and one of Scott's brothers lived. Okay. And then when Jonathan moved into the, com- the same complex, he became friends with Donna as well. And then she introduced him to Scott. I see. Okay. Scott and the handsome 24-year-old Jonathan quickly became friends. But Scott's attraction to Jonathan grew into something more. Once Scott arranged to be on the show, their producers reached out to Jonathan and are quoted as saying, You've been identified by someone who has a secret crush on you. It could be a man or it could be a woman. That's all they would tell him. Okay. Okay. I don't necessarily have any qualms with that. The problem is, is that you don't know how Jonathan feels exactly. about gay people. So he, exactly. I mean, so I guess I do have a qualm with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he tried, I'm sure, to ask more questions. Yeah. Um, and basically, they told him that he would need to come on the show if he wanted to find out who the individual was. Exactly. Jonathan and his girlfriend had broken up about six months earlier. And initially, he thought it might be her wanting to get back together because that was a common 
ploy for those shows okay. a lot. That like all of them across the board at one point had episodes where it's like this person isn't over their ex and they want to get back together. Yeah. They want to get back in touch with them or want to get back together. So that was a way that they did that. So he was kind of thinking along those lines. So he agrees to go. But sometime before leaving, he did start to suspect that Donna and Scott may have something to do with it. He asked them directly and they both denied it, which, of course, they were told by producers. Yeah. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. And if he asks, you deny it. Because that's the whole ploy of the show is that we ambush people with this information. So on March 6th, 1995, Jonathan went to Chicago to find out in front of the world who his secret admirer was. Chicago. Yes. Scott and Donna were on the stage first. And when asked if Jonathan knew that Scott is gay, they both said yes. Because he was open and out. When Scott was asked if he knows whether Jonathan is gay, he replied, no, but anything is possible. Scott, friend. Yeah. Don't do that. That's not fair. (laughs) Donna is then asked if she has any reason to think Jonathan is gay. She responds, quote, not really. He said that his family kind of questioned him on it. He's a very open person, so it really wouldn't surprise me. Okay. But, like, but like, has he told you? Because if, if he hasn't told you and you're doing this on live television, that's, like, really messed up. Yes. They bring Jonathan out on stage, and it's not evident whether he initially thinks it might be Donna who has the crush, but he sees her first. He approaches her first and gives her a hug and, like, a quick kiss on the cheek. And then he continues smiling the whole time. He goes in for a handshake with Scott, at which point Scott, like, pulls him in for the most awkward bro hug ever. I've seen it. It's incredibly horrible. (laughs) It's so awkward. Yeah. (laughs) So he sits down and Jenny Jones asks him if he thought Donna had the crush on him, to which he says, did I? No, we're good friends. Then Jenny breaks the news that it's Scott that has the crush on him, at which point Jonathan laughs and looks at them and says, you lied to me. Yeah, because what is he supposed to say? Right. The crowd goes wild, but you can't make out that Jonathan then says, interesting. Then they show Jonathan a clip of Scott saying that he's fantasized about tying him up to the hammock in his backyard. Oh, God. And that. What they would do, quote, involves whipped cream, champagne, and stuff like that. Ah, <laughs> this is TV. You're doing this and like, this isn't just your, your buds, yeah. you know, you know, you're not, that's, I did want to find them out. Right. <laughs> Gibberish. Right. Which this might be a good point to say very clearly, and I think you would agree I was with just me about on this, to say. is that. We personally don't feel there is anything to be embarrassed about. No. Nor feel shame over that somebody has a crush on you. You didn't like there's yeah. That weird homophobic kind of mindset of like, oh, well, if they if somebody gay has a crush on you, then you must have done something to cause exactly. it. So there I must was, be you must be giving off some kind of vibe. Yeah. No. no, I had the same thought. I was waiting on a good time to just make the the disclaimer, like, if you haven't noticed, 
we are strong allies. Like we're yes. not, <laughs> we yeah. are never going to be, um, I don't think, I think I'm going to speak for both of us. We're not going to be ambiguous about where we stand on no, a, a lot of issues, all. especially this one. So don't. Not at all. We definitely don't think that there's any shame in this situation at all. No. Nope, well, but, later, but. <laughs> but I do want to, the reason I'm kind of phrasing everything that way is just to understand the time period and that a lot of people. Exactly. Especially then still had that stigma, still had that mentality. And we've come a long way in this world, but. Mm. <laughs> but yes, this is the are. time that we're dealing with. So for Jonathan, this would have been a really big deal then. And I know, like, I don't know. I don't know any single straight man in my life that would be this upset by the situation. In my life currently, no. In the past, yes, I do know some that would have mm-hmm. gotten very uh, would they uh, well well okay well we're we'll, here we'll, we'll bring it once back. again this is true crime so obviously so somebody's like, getting real upset it's called the jenny jones murder so <laughs> but would any of the people i knew get upset to this extent i don't think so but it's hard to tell but i i am somebody who is around lots of like masculine men like because yeah. My fiance and all his friends went through fire school and they all were in training to be yeah. firemen. Well, well, a lot of them have gone different directions, but none of them would, like, I don't think react poorly. They would just be like, haha, no, but this is funny. Yeah. I, I think that's a testament, though, generationally. I that's think true. that that whole stigma or idea of you must, like, you must be doing something if somebody of the same sex has a crush on you. I think that kind of started, generally speaking, Mm -hmm. dying out with a little bit with Gen X. Like, they, I believe these dudes are Gen X, but they're older Gen X than me. Yeah, absolutely. I think with the younger Gen Xers and millennials and now you guys, I think that it's kind of dying out because people are realizing, no, that's no reflection on (laughs) you. Exactly. On you. And yes, for the most part, people who are gay are not looking to try and hook up with straight people. But like sometimes you have feelings and you question like like her his friend Donna said, well, his family's questioned him on it and he's pretty open. He seems like an open thinker and possible. So Scott really thought anything's possible. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel I can't speak to that, but I do think that you're right. It's it's a definitely a generational difference, but it's fascinating to me how much has changed in such a short amount of time yes. because of how this ends up. So, yes, absolutely. So Jonathan looked in sh- extremely embarrassed, even hiding his face in his hands at one point. But for the most part, he appeared to be a good sport about everything. When asked what his dating status was, Jonathan said he was not currently involved with anyone and that all of this is flattering, but he is heterosexual. Let's just end it there. There End of the story. Thanks for hanging out with us. You can see us next time. This plays into, you know, the audience kind of went wild when Scott said his thing about the champagne and stuff, and the audience kind of went wild when they revealed that it was Scott. But when Jonathan says, flattering, but I'm heterosexual, the audience goes nuts. And like some people are even like standing up in their seats and giving like a standing ovation. So that just shows you the difference in reaction and where people were. Now, 
Some people involved in the aftermath of everything agree that it was very obvious that Jonathan was extremely uncomfortable but trying to hold himself together and that Jenny Jones herself and or the producers should have stopped filming. Others believe that Jonathan did not look that upset or uncomfortable and that there definitely was no indication that he was angry. What do you think? I have opinions. My take on that is more so that in the moment he was definitely uncomfortable, but it I don't think he had any sort of angry reaction because he didn't have time to and he was just trying to hold himself yeah. together. And that no, like initially he just mostly he did. He looked embarrassed. Yeah. I think that a this this should obviously have never been something that's on TV. I think that it's uncomfortable to to do that because you could end up outing somebody on on TV nationally. That's absolutely yeah. not okay. But to then turn around and say, well, you should have stopped it. This is your fault. That's unfair, I think, to the producers who were just trying to keep their numbers up. I don't think that it's fair to say without an, such an obvious reaction. Like, if he had been, like, destroying things and, like, angry and obviously a danger. Oh, yeah. As far then, as, like, yeah. stopping filming. But I don't think that it's fair to say yeah. that they should have stopped anything. They were just doing their jobs. No. Like, that's... I agree with that. Yeah. I agree that in the moments. There was, he didn't do anything yeah. that indicated, oh, we better stop. I, I do agree with that. Now, either way, no one could have possibly, I don't believe that anybody could have predicted no. well, what, and, what would happen in the coming days. Exactly. And in their defense, they said it could be a man or a woman. Yes. So they're thinking, well, like, he knew this isn't something he can Possible. sue us over. Like, that's their worst yeah. case scenario, you know? Yeah. So after the show, Scott, Donna, and Jonathan actually all fly back to Detroit together mm -hmm. because Jonathan said, if you can change your flights, I left my car at the airport, then I can drive us back home to, I always want to call it Orion, but it's or <laughs> Orion Township. And on the way back, they make a brief stop at Scott's house and then they head to a bar to hang out and have some drinks. Can you so imagine that? That car ride is so awkward to the airport. But according to Donna, there was nothing awkward about it. Like, they were joking around about it. Like, it was fine. Jonathan still seemed like, you know, yeah, haha, okay. It was a little, you know, maybe embarrassing, but he didn't seem angry or anything. I can't imagine if he was that angry about it, why would he offer yeah. them a ride? Why would he say, oh, go ahead and change your flights and we'll go together have you ever been so mad at somebody and then hung out with them voluntarily no, for like nine I'm hours not a person that can do that no maybe I'm not some either. people can but i'm not i don't know that anybody could really i mean if you're stuck on the same flight yeah make the best of it but they weren't obviously they booked everything separately because yeah. he had no idea that they would be there so bizarre this whole this whole case has so many like weird spots in mm -hmm. it like this so this is one of the biggest things. There is some speculation that something happened between him and Scott that night. Mm -hmm. Jonathan denies it. Several of Scott's family members, friends, or whatever say that Scott told him that it did happen, that something happened. Yeah. Donna testified no. Like that they hung out, but to her knowledge, nothing happened. So was Scott just 
saying that to like save face from feeling rejected possibly yeah you know because everybody knew in their personal lives everybody knew that all three of them were they all knew that they're going on the show and they knew what the premise was Mm -hmm. so of course as soon as they come back people were like oh how'd that go right so you know of course jonathan tells his people uh not so well (laughs) yeah and scott may have really talked up Oh, yeah, it was great. You know, who knows? That's a forever question that will never probably be answered. Now, those who believe that something did happen believe that that is actually what triggered Jonathan's anger. But some believe it was just a buildup of anger just from the show and the embarrassment and being ambushed. And so over the next couple of days, I could believe both. Honestly, it could be absolutely. According to Jonathan, Scott's behavior toward him changed after the show. He claimed that Scott became relentless about pursuing more than friendship. And three days after the taping of the show, Scott left a very sexually suggestive note for Jonathan along with a blinking construction light stating that it, quote, takes a special tool to turn this off. Now, Donna testified that the light was something that they came across in the parking lot of the airport after their flight home from Chicago, and that there was some running joke about the whole thing. Okay. Okay. It wasn't just Scott being a super pervert (laughs) and doing something out of the blue. She claims, no, this was a running joke that we had that whole night. Yeah. And she believes that it was just a carry-on from that joking as to why Scott left the note. And that, yes, it could have been sexually... You know, she doesn't deny that, okay, it's suggestive, but she's saying it wasn't out of the blue. It wasn't like a complete harassment kind of thing. Jonathan doesn't see it that way. (laughs) He would later confess to police that it was that moment that he decided to kill Scott. See, that's what's so interesting to me. I, I don't think that if it had just been the show... That it would have been this bad. Like, it had to have been multiple things along with, like, the shame that he felt for that we don't think he should have felt, by the way. <laughs> but, no. like, yes. that and, uh, you know, however his friends reacted when they told him the story and this, that, and the other. Like, there had to have been a buildup. It doesn't make sense for it to just have been yeah. the one incident. I believe it was the perfect storm mm-hmm. of events, beliefs, people's input, etc. Yeah. that created this. Now, the note was left overnight or something. He found it in the morning. So I don't know if he found it as he was leaving home or when he first got. They made it sound like he found it when he got home. He did work at a restaurant slash bar or something. So maybe he got home in like the wee early morning Mm -hmm. hours. He finds the note. He admits, I decided right then I'm going to kill him. So that same morning, he went to a bank to withdraw money. Then immediately to a hardware store to buy ammunition. And then he made a third stop to a gun shop where he purchased a 12-gauge shotgun. So bam, bam, bam. <laughs> One, two, three. He made a plan and he did it all right away. All right then. Witnesses testified that he was very calm and polite while shopping. So weird. He then drove to Scott's mobile home. 
He and Scott went into Scott's bedroom to have a conversation while Scott's roommate, Gary Brady, was in the living room reading the newspaper. Poor Gary. He's just trying to read the news. Comics. He wants to see what Garfield's doing. Mm -hmm. Jonathan claimed that he tried to tell Scott he can't handle the embarrassment and to please stop pursuing him. He also claims that Scott's response was that he can do whatever he wants to whoever he wants, including Jonathan. See, I'm talking about that's not the line or attitude of somebody who isn't just going to let it be the show and like it's going to continue to be like, you know what I'm saying? So there has to have been something else. I'm not not in a victim blaming sense. I'm just saying. No, I feel the same way. I feel just by watching the tape, the show never aired, by the way. Uh, Yes. They, of course, did not air the show once this happened. But they have lent clips of the show or the recording to documentaries and, of course, investigators. You can find it, I think, on YouTube, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. you can find it. So I am of the opinion, based on Scott's whole demeanor on the show, does it excuse killing him? Absolutely not. But he comes across as more aggressive. And I get it that the producers are setting you up by asking certain questions. Mm -hmm. But, like, you could tailor that to be like, I don't really know how this guy's going to respond. I don't know if he's going to like me back. I don't know how he's going to feel about this. You could dial down your commentary Mm -hmm. instead of, like, telling your fantasies about tying him up. And, like, do you know what I mean? Like, to me, that just seemed a little overt for... Yeah, so I can see... So I could see him being kind of pushy about the whole thing. Um. Same thing. Like, you don't want a victim blame because there's no excuse in the world. Even if he no, is being aggressive, yeah. like, call the cops, get a restraining order, do what you got to do. Yeah, he's not to blame for somebody else's decision to shoot, you know, a gun. Exactly. Like, that's absolutely not his fault. He didn't lead to that. But we're trying to just understand because this is not somebody who would have previously committed this act. Like, no. No, not at all. It's not. There's not a clear, because we don't have the full story, there's not a clear indication as how it happened. So we're right. just giving... It's just not, it's not a black and white case Mm -hmm. for sure. Now, at that moment, Jonathan excused himself, claiming he had left his car running and needed to go shut it off. He, of course, retrieved the shotgun from his car. He comes back to the door, knocks on the door when he returns, and Scott answers. Scott saw Jonathan with the gun, and he immediately yelled to his roommate, Gary, help, he's got a gun. Jonathan used the gun to catch the door from closing and, like, in a sweeping motion, opened the door back up. It's kind of cool. As he entered, Scott grabbed a chair, held it up in front of himself, and backed away from the door, according to Gary, who was sitting on the couch. And Why would Gary lie? With no more said, Jonathan pulled the trigger. Now, Gary testified that he saw Scott make it to the kitchen grasping his chest before falling to the floor when he heard another gunshot. So I'm guessing Gary, like, hid or got down on the floor or something. Well, Jonathan's beef isn't with Gary. Right. But he doesn't know. Like, yeah. Oh, maybe, true. If maybe I was Gary, Jonathan, I would. Because he didn't really know Jonathan. I see. That well. All he knew was his name. Yeah. That he went by John. So he said that he just heard the second gunshot. Jonathan leaves. Gary called 911 and just told them what he knew. I don't know. A friend of my roommates came over and shot him. 
And all I know is that his name is John. Yeah. Jonathan drove to a payphone nearby and called 911 himself to turn himself in. Jonathan was crying during the call, stating that he kept saying, this guy, <laughs> instead of saying his name. Shot or, this guy. I just shot this guy. And when asked why he would do that, he said, quote, because he fucking put me on national TV. He played a very bad fucking thing on me. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Scott's brother, Frank, claims that shortly after he arrived to the scene, police warned him that he should hire a lawyer because it was going to be a media circus. Yep. The local media had already arrived on scene and quickly learned from neighbors that the two men had just taped an episode of the Jenny Jones show just three days prior. Mm -hmm. So word was spreading fast. Much like their personal lives being exposed on a talk show, the trial would also play out in the public eye. Court TV covered the trial blowing up the already national news. Jonathan's defense team knew they couldn't claim he wasn't guilty, so the goal was to lessen the sentence. Yeah. Initially stating that there was a shooting, not a murder, because he, quote, did not have the ability to think, reason, or plan due to diagnoses of both bipolar disorder and Graves' disease. Now, whether you know what Graves' disease is or not, you might be thinking, How, what would that have to do with anything? Yeah. <laughs> um, for anybody that does not know, Graves' disease is an immune system disorder that causes an overproduction of thyroid hormones, which can contribute to depression. So, that on top of bipolar can uh, lead to not great things. Murder. Not necessarily. Not necessarily, especially in the eyes of the law. Defense definitely pushed the narrative that Jonathan was under duress in the days after the show when he thought about his family seeing it. Now, that I understand. Mm -hmm. That part makes total sense to me that while he didn't look angry initially while taping the show, the more time he had to sit on it and worry about, my friends are going to see this, my family's mm -hmm. going to see this, depending on your family, depending yeah. on your friends, I get that. Yeah. They claimed that Jonathan believed that his family would assume he must be gay because a gay man liked him. Like I said, that was a common stigma mm -hmm. back then. Jonathan's therapist testified that Jonathan had been diagnosed with, he used the term, a major affective disorder with depression reoccurring. He doesn't come out and say he has bipolar, but yeah. bipolar, major affective disorder is kind of the umbrella term for bipolar and other yeah. manic depression, it, you know. It's just another term. Basically, yes, he had been diagnosed with some sort of mental illness. The therapist agreed that the disorder can affect a person's ability to stay in control, and Jonathan's defense team claimed that he had run out of money to pay for medication and therapy at the time. Okay. So, you know, they're trying to prove that there's this perfect cocktail of circumstances to create him not being able to plan this or really think this out thoroughly or rationally, I should say. The therapist also says, though, that 
The last time he saw Jonathan was in April of 1994, so almost a year prior, and Jonathan seemed to be doing much better, even telling him, I'm feeling much better even though I'm not taking the medication. He had been prescribed clonopin. That's a pretty heavy-duty drug to go off of and still say, well, no, I'm feeling okay. okay. So take that as as you will, I suppose. As far as could he rationally think this through, plan it, whatever. By his own admission, he told police that he made the decision to kill Scott after receiving the note about the construction light, right? Yeah. Okay, if he had made that decision and in anger grabbed his gun that he already had and gone there and just knocked on the door and blew him away, some might say, okay, in a fit of rage, yeah, he irrationally did this. But evidence and witness testimony show that he made those three stops to retrieve everything he needed yep. to commit the murder. So he definitely had time to think it through. <laughs> he had time to calm down mm-hmm. and decide... Maybe this isn't the best way to handle this. Exactly. The defense team then decided to start blaming everyone else involved. Of course. They attempted to argue Scott's intent in picking up the chair. So Gary Brady says he picked up the chair and like started backing away. But defense started questioning, well, is he right about that? Or did he pick up the chair and start to like attack jonathan yeah. with it and jonathan to me that's obviously he i'm was not a lawyer to... but seriously does that even matter jonathan is in his home so if jonathan walked into his house with a gun in hand scott has the right to defend himself in his home well even by hitting him with a chair depends on what state you're in but true for us in florida stand your ground absolutely yes i don't know about shook Michigan. Well, they Michigan. I was yeah. I, the show was in Chicago, but yes. Michigan. So in all of that, they even questioned Gary Brady on the sequence of events. Are you sure there wasn't more said? Are you sure? Yada yada. You know. They then called witnesses to testify to Scott's character, including an ex-boyfriend of Scott's who claimed Scott had been abusive. Hmm. I mean, Jonathan never claimed that Scott. Yeah, I was going to say, how is, that, how is that relevant? Like, I guess character witness is something that's different than regular, like... Yeah, like I said, they're just trying to get the... So weird. The sentencing down. So they don't need it to be any sort of, like, specific proof that, oh, well, Jonathan didn't do it, or he... They just wanted to try and say, look, this guy, yes, he did this, but he did it because of all of these extenuating circumstances. And they want... To make Scott look just as, you know, guilty of being too forward, being too pushy, being aggressive, making Jonathan feel threatened in a way. Yeah. But Jonathan never says, oh, well, he physically threatened me or he, you know, there's no indication of that. It's just that Scott may have said, well, no, you can't tell me who to like and what to do and how to handle that. So. For me, this is very key. Okay. And this is, while in a court of law, it does not excuse away or justify what Jonathan did. Psychologically speaking, it very much makes sense. Okay. They call Jonathan's father to the stand 
after the therapist had testified that Jonathan claimed his father had been abusive while he grew up. Okay. Mr. Schmitz admitted to a time that Jonathan was caught skipping school and that he took Jonathan by the hair, marched him into the classroom while whipping him with his belt in front of everyone. So no wonder he has a shame issue. Oh, it gets better. Oh, no. Mr. Schmitz also clearly demonstrated that the Schmitz family condemned homosexuality. Lovely. The court had in evidence a recording of Mr. Schmitz giving his thoughts on the case in which he said, quote, Father's thought, the reason he had to kill Scott Amador was to prove he's not homosexual. So his dad is like, yeah, obviously, that's, that's what happens. Like, that's normal. Yes. That's- Mr. Schmitz testified that he did speculatively believe that Jonathan did that for that reason and that Jonathan had told him about the taping of the show prior to the murder, expressing worry that the family and specifically his grandparents would think that he's gay because of it. So the attorney tries to reiterate forming a more specific question, saying, you're saying that Jonathan was concerned that your family, you and your family, would think that he's gay. And he says, yes. I mean, how would you feel if your father thought you were a homosexual? Fine. (laughs) Like, you can't ask that question and, and assume that that means, yeah, that's why he killed him and it's fine to me. Like, I don't care. Yes. And that's kind of... That's the vibe I'm picking his, up. His father said, like, no, it doesn't excuse the murder. But yet everything else was like, well, he had to do it to prove he wasn't gay. Like, what? No. Yeah, like, I see. And he very much made it clear. I think it was in the, the civil trial to come when he's questioned again. He makes a comment about, well, yeah, I don't want a homosexual son. My son is straight. You got that, right? Like, he was, like, so aggressive. making sure <laughs> that the court record shows that Jonathan is straight. Yeah. We get it, my dude. Although, truthfully, we don't know. I don't know that anybody knows if he is or if but he just felt forced. Matter. It doesn't matter. It, he should not have shot him. Like, Well, no. No, I'm not course. saying you. I'm saying, like, to anybody. Yeah, of course. Why? So, the blame, of course, did not stop there. But there wasn't a lot they could do proving the show's culpability. So, of course, that would be dealt with in the civil matter. As much as some thought the defense claims were just excuses and that the charge of first-degree murder would stick. You're going to love this. Yay. The lead defense attorney managed to get the judge to use lesser-included offenses, giving the jury options. Juries love options. You know why? Because they don't feel guilty of conviction if they have a choice to make it lighter. Yep. Which I totally understand. Yeah. For anybody that doesn't know or hasn't heard of lesser included offenses, lesser included offenses are crimes that are committed while carrying out a greater crime because the greater crime contains all of the elements of the lesser crime. That is a mouthful. Yes. And somewhat confusing. But basically it's saying, in this case, obviously first degree murder. Obviously he committed second degree murder if he 
committed first degree murder. Exactly. So it's just giving them the option to say, well, we don't necessarily believe that he's guilty of the full first degree murder. Clearly, he's guilty of murder, though. So we'll still find him guilty, but we're going to find him guilty of second degree rather than first degree. Does that sound? Did I explain that? Yeah, it's hard because like normally lesser included offenses are like um, if you killed somebody in the process of a robbery, you yeah. obviously killed somebody, but you in the process, the robbery is right. a lesser charge. So in this situation, they like with the lesser murder charge being a second degree versus a first degree, I think it's a little more confusing to explain it that way. Yeah, because people don't always understand the difference between second degree and first degree murder. Right. Basically, it's the premeditation. Yeah, exactly. So portion. anyway, so hopefully between those, you got it. Yes. If not, let well, us know. Well, Jonathan Schmitz was found guilty of the lesser offense of second degree murder. They okay. apparently bought into that he did not premeditate this. He was sentenced to a mandatory minimum of 25 years and a max of 50. Interesting, because... That's more than a life sentence. Yeah. 25 is I a mean, life sentence. I mean, 25 is, yep. I thought that, I think that's, I, hey, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. I mean, I obviously, I wish a life sentence mean until the end of your life, but it doesn't in most yeah. states, so. That drives me crazy. It does drive me crazy. Like, why do we call it that then? Just call it yeah. what it is. 25 years. Yeah. What so, I don't understand is when they say 25 years to life. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, so that must okay. be that for you, that's not what that, ugh whatever yes maybe i miss that's why that saying it that's exactly how i said it the mandatory minimum of 25 years Mm -hmm. and a maximum of 50 that's how the judge said it yeah and i appreciated that because like you said life quote life sentences are vary from state to state so sometimes when they say 25 to life they mean that's assuming that everybody knows what the life sentence is in that particular state. Exactly. But most people think that when you say 25 to life, it just means, okay, in 25 years, they may or may not be eligible for parole. And if not, then they're going to literally spend the rest of, of their, their life, life in, in prison. prison. And that's not necessarily what no. it means. Normally, each state has a, a different like life sentence. And so most states, I would say most. Yeah. A life sentence is 25 years, which is not a Roughly, life. Yeah. It's not a life. So, not a life. I mean, it is a life, but for most of it, it's just a portion of our exactly. life. Exactly. So, so it's confusing. I, I would love, I need to, I need to read up on which states are, are which so that we know, but yeah. All right. But things don't end there, of course. It's Savannah's favorite kind of case. It's because there's now a civil trial. Yep. So, one of the things, that Scott and Jonathan's families agreed on was that both of the men were victims of the talk show. Okay. And in 1996, Scott Amador's family filed a wrongful death civil suit against Warner Brothers, owner of the Jenny Jones show, for $50 million. I have so many thoughts. I want to spell them all right now. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Okay. <laughs> Number one. That's probably the main one, <laughs> so I'm not going to number it. But, like, yes, they were victims of the talk show. I see where they're coming from, but my issue is with the wrongful death. Because in order for there to be mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we're already, of I course know. we're gonna get there. I know, there. but I have, I'm it. so I like I this is I feel very passionately about this. Okay, I know, I know. So in order for there to be legal responsibility, like for for yes. it to be to have a wrongful death conviction, there would have to be a legal responsibility for the for the life. Yes, and there wasn't any legal responsibility for the life, in my opinion. Yes. Because it's a talk show. They said it could be a man or a woman. They gave what they should have given. They've done it before. Nobody died. Like, right. They weren't responsible for Jonathan's actions after that. Right. Now, were, now was Jonathan a victim of the talk show? I say yes. I don't think, I don't think that Scott was. I think Scott was a victim of Jonathan. Me laying down the, the gavel, the hammer. That would be a logical legal response, though. Yes, but you know, we not, all know that defense and, attorneys are not. And that's not how the family felt, understandably. Yes. And when you have such a high-profile case mm-hmm. such as this, you are bound to find some wild defense attorney Someone's who gonna try it. is willing to take it to court. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And sure enough, the Amador family hired well-known Jeffrey Figer to represent them. Uh-huh. I've actually heard his name before, so he is pretty well known. Oh, yes. <laughs> Cuz Figer was a bit of a a bit of a showboat to say the least. And best known for representing Jack Kevorkian, the famous or infamous, depending on your <laughs> opinion, euthanasia doctor. Indeed. With Figer on the case, the media coverage was never-ending. And on one hand, he used it to their advantage, while at the same time publicly condemning Warner Brothers, the company that not only owned Jenny Jones' show, but also owned Court TV, (gasps) which was making a killing Mm -hmm. off of both trials. Indeed. Figer is accused of being a publicity hound, and he admits that he views himself as not just a lawyer, but a storyteller, referencing the law as the, quote, medium of his art. I think that that's a fair statement for this type of attorney. This, like, attorney who's going in front of a jury and in front of a judge. Like, yeah. I think part of your part of your job is to tell the facts of the story. <laughs> that's, that's, that's why yeah, I'm making the stipulation. That... <laughs> yes. <laughs> the facts of the story in a way that the jury can understand the, the yes. sequence of events. That is part of your job. If you humanize your client, humanize yes. the situation, make your jury put themselves in your shoes to see. Yes. I understand how he got that here. Is the Absolutely part of, of your a job. Good defense attorney. Absolutely. The here's, facts, though, that's the key. Here's my problem. And it's not that he didn't state facts, he does. But here's, I'm going to summarize it in one statement to give you an idea of why. I just think the man is excessive. Oh, I agree. (laughs) Absolutely. His opening statements at the trial were two and a half hours long. Literally, the attorney for Warner Brothers walked up there afterwards and said, I'm definitely not going to take two and a half hours Here's what I have to say. He made one statement and then he goes, see, 60 seconds. Done. Done. Like, there's just, he, he. Honestly, power move on Warner Brothers. <laughs> like, like power move. He's like, you oh. think that was long? That guy's an idiot. Look, I can do it in 60 yeah. seconds. That's he, kind of a cool, like, that's kind well, of a dope he goes, move. 
I I don't think I even could. I don't think I could try to fill two hours. Yeah. He goes, I don't even think I could stand here for two hours <laughs> and talk that much to you. And Figer's just sitting there like, That's I right. did. I did. I did it for two hours and I and made it lots was, of money. I would not have been, if I had been on the jury, I would not have been able to do it. No. Like, ju- I just saw a portion of what he said and so many so many adjectives were used. <laughs> it's like listening to Jose Baez. <laughs> so many adjectives and so many long pauses to just draw it out. Ross. <sighs> I could not do it. It's Ross, but uh, an eccentric attorney. Yes. <laughs> so, Fiker was also absolutely brutal in his cross-examining. Asking badgering questions like, quote, I'll make it real simple for you. I know it's difficult to answer some questions. You're an expert in embarrassment or humiliation for the entertainment of other people, aren't you? Who was he asking that to? One of the producers, ex-producers. <gasps> oh my gosh. Did the I'm so nosy. Did the judge like call that badgering? No, like and the attorney for Warner Brothers said I literally could have objected to every single question he asked. Oh yeah, so but you no at point. some point have to stop. Yeah. And and he said he said in an interview, I mean, I have respect for the man. He knows how to push the limits and like get away with stuff without fully ending yeah. up in contempt of court or getting kicked out. He's like, so you have to respect the man for that. But like, seriously, he's like, I haven't had a case like this before and I haven't had one since. Exactly. <laughs> like, it's that man manipulative is- type of personality is like on one hand, so good at defense but also, like, ethically so bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. So the show's producers and staff, they did pretty well considering. Yeah. They all held that they are not in the business of humiliating people and that this tragic incident was wholly the responsible of Jonathan Schmitz. Absolutely. The climax of the trial was when Jenny Jones herself took the stand. Because, of course... <sighs> I mean, even though we know she's the host and like she doesn't, you know, she doesn't make all of these decisions. That's, that's she's the face. the face. Exactly. So everybody wants to see that. People are waiting on the edges of their seats for her to come on. She finally gets called and Figer laid into her, but she managed to hold her composure throughout. Good job. Throughout most of it, there were some times that she kind of started to lose, or you could tell she was, yeah. she didn't say anything inappropriate, but you could tell she was very flustered. And even times when <laughs> answering questions, um, especially about the embarrassment and humiliation when he would bring that up, she answered very witty and in a way that was like, no, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. Like, he shouldn't have been embarrassed. There was nothing to be, yeah. like, this is not something. And she, at one point, she's like, I don't know. I think it would be kind of exciting. And people in the courtroom, like, chuckled. <laughs> she's an entertainer at heart. That's true. Yes. The show's defense attorneys held that the show and its producers did not owe, quote, any kind of a legal cognizable duty to Scott Amador to protect him against criminal activity by a third party. Exactly what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Also, I just realized that we were referring to, um, oh my gosh, the other attorney's name. Figer. Figer as defense. But I just mean in general, um, he yeah, was prosecution in this case, but like 
I don't know. My he mind has been. He has defense attorney vibes. Ex- he has exactly. I'm <laughs> he so has glad no- you understand that. nothing but defense I'm attorney. I'm so vibes. glad you understand that he has defense attorney vibes, and so that's yeah. why we're confused. But he technically was the prosecution in this case. Yes. So the questions that the jury faced were: number one, was the defendant negligent in one or more of the ways claimed by the plaintiff? And number two. Was the defendant's negligence a proximate cause of injuries or damage to the plaintiff? So now, sorry. Well, you can go ahead. I'm going to break those down, of course. Yes. So go ahead and break them down and then I'll ask you a question. So breaking them down. Question one refers to the Amador's family's claim that the show's producers had a duty to refrain from placing Scott in a position that would unnecessarily expose him to the risk of harm and that they should have known that their actions would incite violence. Okay. Good breakdown. Okay. Now, question two about proximate cause. Proximate cause refers to the question whether Scott's death would have occurred had the producers handled things differently. Essentially, it's, is his death a natural, direct, or uninterrupted consequence of their actions. Yes. So my question, and you're probably going to answer it, so if you're going to answer it, just tell me to shut up. Okay. How in the world did this attorney argue that they had any responsibility or that their actions, like how did they argue? From a legal standpoint, I have no idea. That's just the thing. He's so dramatic. You don't know what he's saying. He's just saying words. It's just, it's, he's pulling at heartstrings, but the mm-hmm. legal, but yeah, it gets crazy. That's what I'm saying. From a legal perspective, there's nothing to be done, but yeah. you are so, man, no, I, manipulative isn't like the right word, but it's not the wrong word either. Yeah. Of, of the story of, of the jurors, of the people that you're talking about. Yeah. That it feels like there is something there. It's just that people don't realize what the actual legal question is. Obviously, the right. situation is horrible. But the question is, were they responsible based on their actions, not was this part of why? Right. So anyway, sorry. I get. I love this stuff. Well, we know why an attorney like this that loves to be in the yeah. spotlight, that loves to be, will take a case even though they know this very likely won't pan out because of the legalities. Like mm-hmm. they don't have a legal duty. But he loves the spotlight. So as long yeah. as his name is in the like, he doesn't care. He doesn't care because he's it's gonna get his career ahead. Exactly. So he's getting paid either way. Yeah. Now or later. So obviously he now. doesn't care. But I'm just. It's always fascinating to me that, like, that's just weird. Anyway. And the families don't know any better. No, like, they have no to, idea. To most people, it just seems like, well, you sh- the show should have known they shouldn't be doing this. They yeah. Shouldn't. And that makes total sense. But unfortunately, if, that's not what our laws state. Yeah. So well, and if you have somebody who is so good at being in front of people, and he looks at you and says, "Yeah, you have a case." Yeah, exactly. You know, you're gonna think, "Okay, great." Now the jury found. Hold on. I'm holding on. The jury found Warner Brothers and the Jenny Jones Show negligent on all counts. <gasps> I don't think I've ever really put this together that that's what they were found. Wow. Yep. A judgment in the amount of approximately $29 million was awarded to the Amador family. The trial court denied Warner Brothers' motion for a new trial, and so they had to move on to an appeal. Mm -hmm. 
and it wasn't oh I think back up I don't think I shared the date of this trial so basically I think they filed it in 1996 I don't think they came to that conclusion like everything over until like 1999 Mm. and then finally on October 22nd 2002 the appellate court agreed with Warner Brothers Mm -hmm. that they owed no duty exactly as a matter of law to protect Scott from the criminal acts of a third party, stating, mm-hmm. quote, part of their opinion said, while the defendant's actions in creating and producing this episode of the show may be regarded by many as the epitome of bad taste and sensationalism, such actions are, under the circumstances, insufficient to impute the requisite relationship between the parties that would give rise to a legally cons... I can never say this oh, word. Cognizable oh, duty. Yeah. You did, were doing so good. I was doing so good. You're spitting out those words. So, yeah, I yeah, mean, I absolutely ultimately agree. It came to that, but it was shocking yeah. that the trial court. But again, you have this guy, and he just talks for hours on end. How many of these jurors? I mean, and jurors who don't know anything about the law, which is absolutely not their fault. Speaking of. That just reminds me of a TikTok that I just saw of a guy saying, I got called for jury duty and I'm not going. Why do you want me deciding somebody? And he goes on this rant. I have so many strong feelings about this exact about video. hiring people to be jurors. Exactly. Because he goes, why should I have to prove to, you know, a librarian and a nurse and exactly. a garbage man that I didn't commit murder. They don't know anything about the law. <laughs> exactly. I was just talking about this with, I don't know who it was, but I totally see the the idea of being a jury member being a job that you go to school for and you're taught the law. Like, yeah. The only thing. But there, I mean, there's, yeah. there. I think it. there's pros and cons either way. Yeah. There really is. Because judges are supposed to instruct them on the law, but yes. then they get in front of somebody like this. Who turns it into a story. Yes. And they forget. And they get lost. Because they're not educated on the law. And that's and not their fault. And we know as paralegals, like, we learn a lot about law. Not as much as lawyers, obviously. Yeah. And there's a lot that, I mean, think about how many topics there were that either we ourselves or somebody that we were in school with, a lot of people that we were in school with, mm-hmm. who there was just certain topics that, like, Every time you thought you had a good grasp on it, you think you understand what the law is stating. But then when you try to apply it to a scenario, yes. suddenly you're like, well, crap. hearsay. I, it's hearsay. Yeah. Let's just name it. It's hearsay. <laughs> yeah, what? It's hearsay. Suddenly you're like, wait, I thought I understood exactly. and now I don't. So how is a lay person who's not used to reading legal language, which is a whole different thing. It's a beast. Yes writing legal language which not the jurors are doing much of that but i do think they go hand in hand with truly understanding it yes and like doing like a random case they're not even like you know but i do understand because i talked to our attorney about this yeah where the constitution the reason that we have the jury system set up the way we do is because the founding father set it up that it's a jury of your peers exactly but that was when they're not going to be people that yeah (laughs) and that was when the law wasn't as complicated as it is now true and so I, I am, I am so firmly in this position. I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna say this on the pod, but I will now. That absolutely, jury members should be people who have gone to law school. It should just be an extension of law school, in my opinion. I think that the way that our law is set up now, it would be much more beneficial 
for that. Yeah. But I understand it both. I can totally see both ways. As somebody who is in the yeah. true crime world yeah. and I see all of stuff like this, I'm like... And you go, how did that happen? How did it happen? Yeah. Because stuff like this is dumb. I agree that there would definitely be benefits to it. The first thing t- that came to my mind, though, the very first thing that comes to my mind as to why it might not be a good idea yeah. is that we know from working in the legal field, and I believe that this is why a lot of attorneys get a bad rap, Yeah, is because of their attitude. Yeah, you're right. And <laughs> it is so easily to become a cynic when you're in this yeah, field. Yeah, it is. And I think that if you had to be a person that was sitting on all these different trials, trial after trial after trial, yeah, fair. you could so easily get sucked into a mindset where you're no longer objective. But I think the same thing could be said about doctors and nurses too. Like they have to. Oh, absolutely. I've heard people say, well, I have to remind myself that this is a person. Yeah. And like I get like that in probate. Yeah, that's it. I mean, having because, you know, I've done everything. (laughs) Um, But no, when I worked in the medical field, yeah, you have to kind of like detach in a way so that you don't get like over emotional at the wrong time. Because, you know, when they're having an emotional breakdown, legitimately like they yeah make sense but like you can't be i worked in ob and so i dealt with a lot of miscarriages and stuff and you can't like you want to ball your eyes out but you have to kind of detach and yeah and be like no i can't be falling apart like they need me to they be a need support. me to yeah. support them on what they need so it it is a tricky thing yeah and so i mean i think in the law so said. Yeah, because I get like that with probate. People are calling and they're grieving and they're upset. And I'm like, yes. oh, I'm so sorry. And I try. I am really compassionate. That's why I love my job is because I truly do. I am compassionate about people going through grief. I really yes. am. Part of that to me is being the person that gives them structure and saying, okay, I, this is horrible, but this is what you need to do now. Yeah. Um. So, and I get like that too. I'm like, well, he's dead now, so <laughs> move on. But at the same time, it's like, yeah. You know, you feel it. So I I totally see where you're coming from, but I think it's true in in any profession that deals with anything sensitive. Yeah. I think it's just, like I said, that's why I see pros and cons to to doing it either way. You know, and that's why laws change is because there's never going to be a perfect solution to anything ever. Yes. Now, I just have one little more tidbit that I just want to share because of the topic of this case and the sensitive nature Mm -hmm. if you will so obviously this case is just one of many acts of violence against individuals in the lgbtq plus community um this took place 28 years ago but we unfortunately still have a Mm -hmm. lot of work to do so if anybody is so inclined i looked up some info and found the anti-violence project they pretty much help in educating and helping you understand, helping people understand the importance mm-hmm. and like just how much this happens, both in cases like this where it's they were friends. Yeah. And this happened. It happens in, you know, they even help with like domestic violence in the mm-hmm. LGBTQ plus community. Um, but there's, of course, today it's a lot more about trans people. Yeah, it, it seems. Um, anyway, there was a lot of good information that I found on their website. So I will put the link Absolutely. in our show notes. If anybody is interested in finding out more info 
or learning how you can help. We'll also stick it in our link tree and you can find there to um, a link to like information on indigenous women that are missing. So our link yeah. tree will have in order, I believe it's our listening, like where to find us, um, a request a case, and then we'll have different links to, you know, sensitive topics that we've discussed either on the podcast or on social media. Um, so if there's ever anything that we talk about and you'd like more information um, and we mention a source, we'll, we'll normally link it there or in the show notes. Yes. Well, thanks all for listening. Yeah, if you made it through, it was a it was an excellent case. Did I go over a lot? Oh, I have no idea. No, we're good. But I just Yay. mean like through, I know a lot of people who listen to podcasts don't like banter. And to some people, what we just did with ranting about laws is banter. <laughs> I think that that's why we're here is to understand kind of yeah. our perspective on it. But so if you love our banter, we love you. Yes, thank you. All right. Till next time. Till next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at Burden of Proof Pod and email us at burdenofproofpod at gmail.com.